Hello and welcome back to The Atomic Hobo. I'm Julie McDowell and this week I bring you the second part of my interview with Christophe Andersons of the Eastern Border podcast. Last week's episode was one of the most popular I've ever done, so either it was hugely interesting or you were all just glad to hear someone else's voice and get away from my Glasgow accent. Either way, I'm glad people seem to like it and I'm going to do some more interviews in future. So in this episode, we'll talk about the bones, keep listening if you want to learn what the hell that means, and we'll look at how well prepared the Soviet people were to cope with the aftermath of nuclear attack. Would they have endured it better than us soft and decadent Westerners? We'll also talk about how the West was portrayed by the Soviet leaders, and there will be talk of vampires and the drinking of blood. But we start on a more pleasant topic, with the Soviet fascination with Western pop music and a little band called The Beatles. Then again, we learn a lot from Britain. I mean, one of the most interesting, fascinating aspects is that, you know, we, everyone got fascinated with, like, the Beatles and everything, and the British music scene has always, like, been amazing. So uh, people here, and I mentioned this on my show, one thing that we did, and doesn't, re- doesn't relate to the nuclear things, but uh, it's really interesting, kind of shows that how, what we went through is that people would dig through uh, kind of hospital trash cans, rubbish bins. For you, it's rubbish bins. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I, I learned yes. I, I learned British English at school, but now I've been you know speaking with Americans for so long that I kind of mix them all up. But uh, <laughs> they, they dug through that, and they just took a kind of you know old thrown out X-ray pictures, and then they made vinyls out of them. And they were called the Bones. So you would listen to uh-huh. the Beatles or Elvis or or Louis Armstrong on the Bones because they would be like kind of like some is dot just for music you see okay and then then people could like roll them up and destroy them really easily if the kgb came up through you and uh, my dad he well, he was in the punk rock band inspired by the sex pistols of course because that music got smuggled in and he had yeah. to make his own electric guitar from a table and some copper wiring <laughs> wow yeah so the so the thing is that what i've learned myself is that you guys in the west had bigger stockpiles and whatnot but in the nuclear war i'm pretty sure that you'd you'd live a shorter period of time but you'd live it like, you know, more well off because you kind of, you know, have these huge freezers stockpiled with food. At least Americans do. Visited there, saw that. Over here, we're, we're more better. We're better at living off the land and whatnot. We're, yes. we're kind of tougher in the way. However, uh, this also has left a scar in our all consciousness because in Eastern Europe, in Eastern Europe, people are much, much more afraid of new ideas, much more afraid of, you know, starting something new. We're paranoid. Yeah. We're, we always look for the worst scenario, worst something that could happen. It's kind of this this living in fear. Uh, you can compare how in the West people lived in fear and how nuclear nuclear war shaped your society. In the same way, nuclear war is just in the background because we have this everyday presence of the KGB. And it was also yeah. this, the, these very KGB agents who came to your house and they gave you all these kind of civil defense materials, these booklets about how to survive a nuclear war, right? But they weren't there to give you these materials. They were there to check if your house didn't have any, you know, prohibited literature or anything. There was just a pretext yeah. to, to basically check on you. So that's okay. kind of a bizarre double take on this whole situation. Ah, so so the civil defense leaflets, they weren't just 
They were actually delivered in person by a KGB guy at the door. Well, they, they never introduced themselves as the KGB guy, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's who he was. Yeah, everyone knew that's who he was, or he yep. was there to check up yep. on you. Yep. Because it was literally illegal to have anything, because uh, it was illegal to have anything from pre like interwar Lafayette stuff here. It was illegal to have a lot of books here. Um, like, for example, George Orwell's literature or even Solzhenitsyn stuff. Uh, a lot of things mm -hmm. was, were illegal. So they just used this as a pretext. But everyone basically here knew that if the Soviet Union would, would start a nuclear war, then, uh, well, the world would die and there would probably be no survivors. We we didn't yeah. really we, we had a, we had a depressive folk. If you look at the for example one of the one of the also the scars that remains still here is that if you look at the suicide ratios among males and females in general per capita, then yeah the Baltics uh, and the Baltics and the Caucasus and the post Soviet republics nicely top of the list. I think I think Lithuania oh. beats us up, but yeah we're we're not we're not a, we're not happy campers. We're uh, pretty depressive people. <laughs> But right. but that's that's for a reason. I, I'm, okay. I don't know. I'm sorry for going off with these tangents, but this whole nuclear war thing is kind of tied to our culture in general, whom we grew up with. Because you know, yes. imagine that that you know you, you work in a factory that produces sausages and you, you don't see any of them at home, and then that all goes to the army because the Soviets were so afraid that the Americans would actually nuke them that they just actually made sure that the army was the only place which didn't revolt, which were kept like they were kept like totally fed and everything because you have to take care of the army the army's your power base so a land where the people lived in paranoia where they feared the kgb and where horribly they even feared friends colleagues and neighbors as there was no way of knowing if those people could or would denounce you to the authorities for singing the wrong song or telling the wrong joke. So surely these people must have seen the West as a lovely land of freedom. Or is that hopelessly naive? I asked Chris Stamps how the West was portrayed. Were we seen as evil capitalists itching to drop the bomb? And if so, did the people believe that? Well, no, we, we actually, uh, we didn't believe the common Westerner was an evil person because, again, mm -hmm. we... Uh, See, uh, I don't know how it's like in mainland Russia, but in the periphery, like, you know, in the Baltics or at the Caucasus region and all these places, we always saw the Soviets as our oppressors. We didn't like them at all. So whenever whenever they said something, we looked at it with a huge dose of skepticism. And then we yeah. always try to listen to Radio Free, Radio Free Europe and stuff like that in Voice of America. So we didn't believe that the common Western person wants to kill us. No, we actually wanted, you know, we wanted some taste of this capitalist freedom. However, we did believe that there were some clearly militaristically aligned generals in the West who would gladly nuke the Soviet yes. oblivion. Can you tell me, please, Kristaps, about school, about um, the civil defense classes or preparation which children had at school? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was great. <laughs> like uh, I, that, that was my that was comes from the studies of my dad because uh, well I grew up in a, di a different era. Yeah. But uh, we still, we had these classes where we were taught how to assemble, disassemble a Kalashnikov, how to put on the gas mask in case of a chemical attack, how to spot NATO tanks by their kind of silhouettes in the background. It's it's all these little nice things because uh, the same with the pioneer system. Pioneers were basically the guys who would uh, 
like little school kids about the age of 15 and 16 in the Soviet doctrine of warfare would be dropped, say in Britain, in the background. Because, you know, you are nice Western people. You wouldn't, you wouldn't shoot a 15-year-old kid, right? <laughs> but that 15-year-old kid would gladly murder your families and destroy all of you and plant nuclear bombs in your basement. Why? Because he's been indoctrinated. We had this national hero, Pavlik Morozov. You might have heard of him. He, had, he became a national hero as an idealized story, which probably didn't really happen, but about how he betrayed his own parents to the, to the KGB for, you know, uh, storing some wheat so that they could survive the winter, that, thus not, uh, not encouraging the Soviet goals enough. He was a national hero for the kids. And when the kids, and the, we also had paratrooper classes. Oh boy, uh, paratrooper classes who were like taught how to do parach- parachute jumping. Because, you know, child soldiers, that was a thing. If you were a pioneer, you would probably be dropped back in the enemy lines with some explosives and guns because you know the people will be nice to you. However, you're also trained by your school, in your special clubs, and in your classes, how to bomb bridges, how to explode things, how to murder people, how to infiltrate, how to pretend to be nice and cuddly. Uh, however, uh, you will just kill them all while they sleep. Cute. So, so was every skilled child taught this or only those who were in the, the pioneers? Oh no, pioneers had a special training. Every school child, child was just taught how to defend themselves. But the pioneers right. did their own extra extra special thing. It's like, you know, it's like Boy Scouts except with guns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I know, I know, I know. We're laughing. This is why I become super cheerful when I when I discuss extremely terrible yes. things about child soldiers. Because uh, uh, when I make my show, sometimes I have to speak about the extermination of my own people now and then, and uh, the yes. terrible things that happens. And at that point, chilly, sarcastic cheerfulness is the only thing that keeps me going. I've watched a lot of Black Adder. <laughs> oh, Black, Black Adder! <laughs> yes, I love Black Adder. Yeah. <laughs> No, I understand why there has to be some humor because, you know, you, you might go mad otherwise. There has to be some humor in such a horrible, frightening topic. Yeah. I, I do agree with you on that. That's the thing. This is why my own show's tagline is happiness is mandatory. And a lot of people misunderstand that. They they see happiness is mandatory, which is kind of my show's tagline, means that um in one point the government wants you to be happy at all costs. If you're not happy, they'll punish you. But when you can't do anything <laughs> against them, when you can't really do anything to survive this because there aren't a lot of you know normally stable 12 13 year old kids that want to go and blow up bridges in the some random country whose people they've never known of right um in that case the only thing that is left for you the only thing that they can't take away from you is their own happiness just don't don't be the happy be happy but not in the way they want you to be happiness is mandatory is also how you endure all those things how you endure the fact that you must fight for a foreign country even though your own language and everything is oppressed and when i made the chernobyl episode too i spoke with people and you know the people who gathered all this stuff and uh, i have to give props to the to the the series of chernobyl because they, they made it accurate for yes. a lot of people who were sent there to gather up the nuclear fallout. There were just random people just grabbed up in the middle of the night from barracks and told, hey, you, you, and you, hey, you're, you're going into the shopper. We're off now. Poof, done. They're not told where they're going. They're not told what's going to happen. Nothing. Secrecy. And the same mm-hmm. would happen in nuclear war. The first thing the Soviet government would have done is to probably quarantine the cities completely. Make sure no information goes out. Nothing comes in. Nothing goes out. They would just cut them all off and pretend that nothing would have happened. I mean, if you if you look at Chernobyl, Kiev got its own dose of radiation, yet they never even canceled the May, uh, the 1st of May children's demonstration, you know, 
instead of you know evacuating people and taking care of them they just brought out little kids in the fields and made them march with happy flags and everything even though knowing they would probably get a you know quite unhealthy dose of radiation the Soviets would yeah. at least pretend for a while that nothing has happened to their own population while they would be busy launching their own nukes to the West to ensure maximum casualties would happen. Because unlike you in the West, the Soviets actually planned to nuke a bunch of civilian centers. In their plans, it wasn't about because the Soviets, the Soviets knew that they would lose this nuclear war. So instead of uh, aiming for the military targets, yeah, there were nukes aimed straight at London, straight at New York. Literally, yeah. literally, and and uh, again, I'm I'm swearing here. I'm sorry for that, but that's my Eastern European style. However, you have to think about this: the fact that the Soviets aimed their nukes at the places where the most population centers were, fo- were, were, were focused on, right? The uh, the West, as far as I've seen, aimed their nukes at the places with the most military value. The Soviets didn't bother. Why? Because well, you know, we we can't we can't win this war anyways. Let us just kill them all. Fun times. Yeah. I know that you said children were taught or pioneers were taught civil defence uh, techniques, but people who worked in factories, for example, um, did, were they also taught, you know, when an ordinary person went to work yes, in the Soviet Union, did they receive training? Everyone. You had posters all over the place. And right. every university, every school, every workplace, uh, they had their own little red corner with the Communist Party agenda. And they also had their little corner about, and this is what we're going to do with the filthy capitalists decide to nuke us. And when I'm saying filthy capitalists, I do not even mean that in any metaphorical way. It was always depicted as this... Uh, and you're from Britain, so I'm going to use your analogy. Uh, the British kind of... You, you had this like... John Bull, I suppose. What was your default? Yes. Yeah, that guy. He was depicted as wearing Union Jack, but like with vampire teeth and very (laughs) menacing looking, trying to extort the filthy, extort the working person. Because you see, you were you were you were the home of the industrial revolution in general, and you were you were Mm -hmm. seen as the the major empire at the time. Well, the United States took your place in a way, but Britain was always seen as the number two great evil because because of the colonial policies. And okay. also in the early years of the Soviet Union, let's not let's not forget that when when Lenin took the power in before World War II, there was also the second volume of the Great Game played right between the Soviets yeah. and the British, and the, the always it was like uh, always the British were portrayed as some sort of super stuck up, very evil, very you know they they took a they took all the stereotypes humanly possible, <laughs> like you know they would show a tea time with cakes, except it's Margaret that. Thatcher, uh, who looks like a very super skinny vampire, or together with this John Bull character, and they're just drinking the blood of little workers, class, working class children. <laughs> oh, and dear. that's what I want to do to you. <laughs> that's strange because um, the way we saw ourselves in the 70s and 80s, Britain was obviously, we'd lost our empire after the end of the Second World War. And af- after the Second World War, Britain was in a terrible decline, especially in the 70s. So we saw ourselves as a bit battered, a bit miserable, a bit poor. We didn't, we didn't see ourselves as villains who could change the course of world events. We saw ourselves, I think, as quite pathetic and worn out. You know, the war kind of exhausted Britain, used up all her resources. 
and after the war we were in a perpetual decline. Yeah, but but like I don't think we saw ourselves as strong. But in the, the Soviet era was like you always had to pick a villain, and uh, the British yeah. were the villains of Europe, because you see they couldn't okay. they couldn't portray France that way because France had a lot of history with kind of socialist ideas, and they had a very strong communist party. Meanwhile, Britain right. never uh-huh. had it, and Margaret Thatcher especially was always portrayed yeah. as this like queen of evil. I don't know, kind of like uh, kind of like <laughs> Kayla from Thor movies or something. Yeah, she was like <laughs> always the number one evil oppressive person, especially because the Soviets tried to interfere in a lot of affairs in colonial Africa, where you had uh-huh. a, you know a great deal in, and it was yeah, always portrayed yeah. about how uh, the evil British people they they just drink uh, the blood of the babies. The same happened with Americans too, by the way, <laughs> especially in the Korean War, because I've literally read uh, accounts about how how uh, American soldiers get fed the blood of Korean babies to get them more bloodlust to kill more Koreans. It's kind of oh, like even so, so. This would be on on posters or or in booklets or newspapers and in books so, where, where in children's books, in books too. Books? Yes. Children's books? Yes, of course. You said children's books would have contained all this propaganda about, for example, Margaret Thatcher and the West drinking blood, etc. Who were these books aimed at? Was it teenagers or, or younger children? Uh, there were two types of them. younger children were too because uh, one of the things that one of the things that happened was that my grandpa when he was there before uh, before the war and he finished the fourth grade when he uh, you know when the Soviets came in so imagine for the fourth grader in 1941 mm-hmm. receiving a book called great tales from the fourth great tales from the 38th party congress Told how uh, you know it's just basically just after uh, just after the Soviets and Nazis invaded Poland together, and it's basically told how um, the Western countries shall never ruin the alliance between the Soviets and the Nazis, and how they liberated the Polish workers together from the oppressive hands of the bourgeoisie. Right, yeah. that's being given to the fourth graders. That's a context part. Okay. So the little kids, they yeah, of course, because the Soviets, you know. It's kind of similar in the similar vein because that's why people use child soldiers. Child children, if taught properly, can be way more merciless than the adults. This yeah. is the same reason why, for example, in the American nuclear programs, they only use the soldiers aged from 18 to 21 to run their nuclear tests because they are more reckless. People my age, I'm about 30 now, like I would think twice before you know launching a nuclear missile at someone. Yes. Younger kids, they don't, they don't care. They just want some glory, and they, they would, they're more likely to obey the orders. So yes, all the, all the books for the very young kids, they were like happy tales from Lenin and evil <laughs> tales from filthy capitalist countries with whom you should obliterate whenever you can, in a maximum cheerful voice for glorious effectiveness. And so, so these children's books, um. You know, if you look at what we had in the West, it'd be you know fairy tales and stories about bears and you know oh, no, dolls. No. And, you and know. we had and we had tales about glorious uh, pioneers sacrificing themselves against the fights uh, and the fighting against the Nazis and the glorious people from Angola fighting against their colonial oppressors and all that good stuff, uh, which usually ended with the glorious pioneer sacrificing his own life by murdering as many of the enemy as he could, because that was what the Soviets expected of you. 
And this was aimed at, um, you said fourth graders would be receiving this. So what age is that about? Is that right? It's about 10. 10, right, right, okay. And um, so I assume these books, obviously they're aimed at children, they would have illustrations and and pictures in them. Uh, violent pictures or unpleasant pictures well uh, you would call them unpleasant but most pictures that they had were like these they really like to put in uh, pictures of pioneers and these young kids just dying in very horrific ways but with happiness in their eyes and then when you talked about uh, imagery of for example margaret thatcher and john bull drinking blood would would these be in in these books also or would they be yeah yeah they would be everywhere basically and they would always, right. they would, they would always kind of, you know, have this little caveat there that. Uh, but we also met with people of the working class of Great Britain, and they totally agree with us that uh, you know uh, Britain is a place of evil, and you know that they want to overthrow their government, but the evil capitalists are keeping them down. I, I put on oh, my dear. my silly accent for that. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Now, um, I remember, well, I don't remember, I know that Margaret Thatcher visited uh, Moscow, I think it was in 1987. Well, the news portrayed, you know, she walked around the streets in her big furry hat and everyone was shaking her hand. Uh, I None of the then, people shaking her hand were actual Moscow citizens. All of them were KGB agents. She only saw what she was supposed to see. Soviets were really good at this right. thing. Trust oh, me, okay. every Soviet, every tourist of the Soviet Union got to see only the things they were allowed to see because they always had a KGB watcher upon them and all the locals right. speaking with them knew what they could say and what they couldn't say. And if they said the wrong things, then it's off to Gulag to you and your family. Happy times. I'm sorry. So I, just, see... I just get extra cheerful for this because that is the only <laughs> way how I can deal with this. So I'm looking at Google just now. I've done a Google image search of Thatcher, Moscow, 1987. And we see her uh, walking around the streets and there are crowds around her who are all waving and smiling. But are you saying they were all put there by the KGB? They, they weren't just ordinary yes, people in Moscow? Of course. 100%. Right. Everyone in the okay. Soviet Union knew this is the time. Just, just like, you know, when the Moscow Olympics happened in 1980, they literally uh, took out all, they sent all the kids from Moscow to Arbat and special kind of, you know, relaxation camps, you know. Let all the kids have a nice tourist vacation. They struck a deal with organized crime. They just sent everyone out 100 kilometers away from Moscow. Moscow from the 1980 Olympics were just purged clean from everything that could look bad. Same for the Th- Thatcher thing. All the crowds there, uh, they, uh, they're, they're sent there from <clears throat> volunteers who volunteered to be there and wave their flags, out of which about 30% are KGB agents and other people just forced to be there and wave their flags. Ah, and told to smile and wave flags and be happy. Yes. I, I did not know that. That's, that's quite that's quite interesting because obviously in in the West we saw all these all these pictures. Like, look how welcome Thatcher is in Moscow. Look how so great is, it all is. This is why I make my show because you in the West sometimes are. Um, I'm sorry for this, but uh, you're more entrepreneurial, but you're quite naive. I mean, <laughs> even from my own travels, I mean, um, yeah, I've, I've noticed the fact that uh, I can just jaywalk in London and no one cares. But uh, you people are nicer and kinder uh, over here. We were like, if I'll get an extra dose of sausages, I can just wave my flag. It doesn't matter what these people believed in. I mean, some people yeah. definitely believed in this, but uh, yeah, they were mostly hired people. There's this okay. thing called pakazucha, which is called uh-huh. showmanship, I suppose, because it's like Pochomkin's village. Think about it that yeah. way. They built this perfect Pochomkin's village under threats of death. 
that's that's how it operated. Same with the nuclear thing. Nothing ever happened to us. Nothing can ever happen to us because we are the mightiest country on the planet Earth, right? We'll nuke you to extinction and we will smile and wave, boys. Smile and wave. I did not know this. I feel, as you say, Christelle, I feel quite naive that I didn't know this. I thought all those crowds are welcoming Thatcher because, you know, the Gorbachev era, the Cold War is starting to thaw. Gorbachev killed the whole uh, Chernobyl catastrophe and he kind of, you know, wrapped up the Afghanistan war. Still, the end, KGB kind of opposed him. KGB staged this uh, August coup, if you don't remember that one. But uh, still, KGB had a lot of control, independent of the general secretary. So yeah, uh, yeah. those crowds there, they're all seriously vetted people. Everyone there and has been vetted for loyalty or a KGB agent. Nothing right. was... The uh, Soviet Union was a country of lies. It was built upon yeah. lies. It worked upon lies. It worked upon this acting thing. And if there was one thing that the Soviets are really good at is that, you know... Well, you know, there's this uh, there's this uh, person from the enemy country coming to visit our, our lands. Do you want uh, something bad to happen to your family? I don't think so. Go greet her with flowers. Be nice to her. If not, well, I'm, I'm going to stay here. I'll just stay here and, uh, you know, I have this Mosin Nagan pistol here. Um, it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, you, you go chill. That brings the interview to a close. Thank you again to Christas from the Eastern Border podcast. If you have any questions, you can find Christas on Twitter at Eastern underscore Border, or of course you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell. I just have to thank my patrons now before I go. If you want to join my Patreon and support my work, please do take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. Here's a reminder that the music for this show is from X. Find them on Twitter at XBandUK. And let me thank all my patrons who make this podcast happen. And let me give a special thanks to Dan Breen, Gary Watson, Arika, Lucy Stegerwald, Jonathan Abelins, Heather Parker, Peter Mars, Tom Stickland, Yannick, Andrew Key, Sam Marco, Richard Grundy, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damian Ryan, Peter Lee, Bruce Armstrong, John Haynes, Eamon Coyle, Julie Eek, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Tara Moore, Simon Reid, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Woolnuff, Kevin Butter, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell-Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan, Paul Jonathan Viner and Gordon McNair. I hope you've enjoyed it and of course thanks to Christav and take a look at his podcast The Eastern Border. Mm-hmm.